All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Mark, chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. Uh, We have some visitors here, so we are continuing our study of Mark's Gospel. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible most of the time. And, uh, And this morning we will be looking at the account of our Lord Jesus being anointed with perfume while he was in the town of Bethany. Uh, We have come to the beginning of the end of Mark's gospel. In chapter 14, Mark begins his passion narrative. Uh, Just in case you didn't know, passion comes from the Latin that means to suffer. Uh, In this chapter, we begin the narrative concerning the preparation, betrayal, arrest, trial, condemnation, crucifixion, and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we all confess that the heart of our faith is Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. And so it, it, it makes sense that Mark, who is usually pretty quick and brief in his narratives, slows things down at this point. Chapters 14 and 15, compared to the rest of the book, are an unusually long account of the events surrounding the death of Christ. Um, everything is coming to a head at this point in our text. The crucifixion is soon to take place. The purpose that Paul tells us, the purpose for which Christ came into the world, to die for sinners on a cross, is right on the horizon. But before his death, a series of events take place. And since they're recorded for us in the scriptures, we know that God wants us to meditate upon them. Right? God doesn't waste ink, so we're supposed to meditate upon these things. And I believe that he wants us to behold Christ in his glory. He wants us to see the worth of Christ, the wickedness of sin, the sovereignty of Christ over his own death, the sacrificial love of Christ, the cost of our redemption, and the salvation that Christ has wrought by his blood. And these are all themes in chapters 14 and 15. And this morning we're going to be focusing on one of them, and that is the worth of Christ. This is the subject too big for me, but I'm going to do my best. We're going to talk about the worth of Christ. And to do that, we come now to a beautiful portion of Scripture about a woman who anoints Jesus with perfume. We will read of a disciple's act of love and devotion to the Christ who would die for her sins. And my prayer is that through this sermon, God would show us Christ. Just a glimpse. That he'd show us Christ. And that God would show us how we should esteem him. How we should view him. How we should love him. And how we should gladly give everything that we are and everything that we have to him. And and from that... May God also remind us that what is done for Christ matters forever because Christ remembers it. Now, with that said, if you would now and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. 
Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we come before you now in eager expectation of what you will do through the preaching of your word. You love your word, and you have promised blessing to those who will receive it with faith. And so we ask that by your spirit, you would open our hearts to receive what you have revealed in scripture. Teach us and reveal wonderful things to us this morning as we turn to study your word. Show us your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Show us just something of his infinite worth. For we know that if we get even the smallest glimpse of who he is, we will be changed. Grant that we would behold Jesus Christ with the eye of faith. And from that, grant that we would give all that we are to him in love, for he first loved us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now the first two verses of our text tell about the plot of the religious rulers of Israel to arrest and kill Jesus. Now, I intend, Lord willing, uh, to return to these verses more thoroughly next Lord's Day, but for our purposes this morning, it's sufficient to have a few things in mind from these opening verses. Uh, Passover is going to take place in two days in Mark's narrative at this point. Passover is in two days, and Passover is the most important religious festival for the Jews. Uh, Passover is the celebration of God delivering Israel out of slavery to Egypt. On the evening before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a lamb was to be killed and eaten by those who were celebrating each house. And it was to remind Israel of when God commanded that the blood of a lamb be put on the doorposts of each house so that God's wrath would pass over the house as God judged Egypt, hence the name Passover. And when this festival took place, the population of Jerusalem increased greatly. Some people say six times its normal size. Right? And that's because sacrifices were to be offered at the temple during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, our Lord was very popular. Right? He was a very popular rabbi, very well known. We read of that throughout the Gospels. Now, hear me, I want to be clear. Not many truly believed on him. Not many, very few. Not many recognized who he really is. But nevertheless, he was very popular. Why? Because he healed people. He healed people, and that was undeniable. And he was a great teacher who wasn't afraid to debate with the Pharisees and Sadducees. So he was very well known. And so, because of his popularity and the increased population in Jerusalem during Passover, the religious leaders thought that it would be best to arrest Jesus by stealth, lest there be an uproar, that is, a riot. They didn't want a riot to break out over a popular figure being arrested. The chief priests and the scribes know the Romans well enough. The Romans would be brutal if a riot broke out. They would quickly and violently put down any kind of rioting. So the religious leaders were looking for an opportunity to stealthily arrest Jesus and have him killed. In light of this, some commentators say, and I tend to agree with them, that there's actually a good chance that the religious leaders of Israel had hoped to arrest Jesus after the festival was over. that, That fits with what Mark says here. They don't want there to be an uproar. They're trying to do everything stealthily. They probably wanted to wait until after the festival was over. But that was not the plan of God, was it? And there is, there is a whole sermon that could be preached from, this, from, from that truth. But let me say this. 
God was sovereignly orchestrating the sacrifice of the true Passover lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And it was the will of God, it was no coincidence, it was the will of God that Jesus die for the sins of his people during Passover. That was not a coincidence. That's not just a cool, oh, that's all. No, that, that is the plan of God here. God controlled the whole thing, not the religious leaders. And Jesus would be crucified on Passover. But see this very simple truth for our purposes this morning. Jesus was hated. He was hated. The chief priests and the scribes want to kill him. And so they are seeking a way to have him arrested and killed. The first two verses of our text are full of hatred from Christ's enemies. But here in verse 3, Mark quickly transitions to another scene. And the difference could not be greater. And we will see that even in the midst of being hated by some, Jesus is loved by others. He is loved by his people. In verses 3 through 9, Mark flashes back to a scene a few days before in the town of Bethany. You say, how do you know he's flashing back to something that happened in the past? Well, the parallel account, there's a parallel in Matthew 26 and, and John 12. The parallel account in John chapter 12 tells us that this event happened six days before the Passover. Mark says that this happened while he was in Bethany. But Mark does not explicitly link it to being two days before the Passover. So there is no contradiction between Mark and John if you read the text carefully. Mark says this happened while he was in Bethany. John tells us when it would happen. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark has taken this event chronologically out of order, but he has done so in order to make a couple of theological points. John, on the other hand, is recording it chronologically. I just wanted to put that little apologetic out there for you. Read the text carefully. There is no contradiction. Uh, and it's good to remember that the Gospels are not meant to be read like newspapers. Right? Sometimes events are recorded out of order in order to make theological points. But it's always done in such a way that there is no actual contradiction if you read the text carefully. Um, but the text says they're in Bethany. It's a town right outside of Jerusalem. It's where our Lord was staying before his crucifixion. And in verse 3, Mark says they were in the house of Simon the leper. Uh, now, if you couldn't guess, Simon is obviously a former leper. Uh, he's not a leper anymore. If he still had leprosy, the Mosaic law would forbid anyone from being near to him. And I'll give you three guesses why he's not a leper, and the first two don't count. Uh, I think it's fairly safe to say that our Lord healed him, and that's why Jesus is a guest in Simon the leper's house. And again, it's a bit of guessing here, but I don't think it's that, that far-fetched to think that Jesus is the reason why Simon the leper could have people in his home. So this is a meal where Jesus is an honored guest. Jesus is among friends here. And Mark records for us in verse 3. I'll read the whole verse. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, who was this woman? Mark doesn't name her, but John does. John 12 tells us that this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Now, why do I want you to know that? Why am I wanting to highlight this? For this reason, Mary had heard Jesus teach. Mary had heard him teach. This is the same Mary that Luke tells us in Luke chapter 10, verse 39, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. This is the same Mary who has also seen Christ's works. John chapter 11 tells us that Jesus raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. 
And she was there to see it, and she expressed faith in Christ. Mary believes in Christ. She is not a stranger to Jesus. Okay, I want you to see that. She's not a random woman. Uh, She is a disciple. She's a friend of Christ. She loves him. She believes in him. And this is very important for us to, to know, I think, as we consider this text this morning. Mary wasn't one of the 12, but she was a disciple. To speak somewhat anachronistically, you can say Mary was a Christian. She believed on Christ. And as a disciple, though often, often disciples of Christ are not very uh, positive examples for us in the Gospels. Right? Let's just call it what it is. In this text, in this text, Mary serves as an example for how all believers are to esteem, love, and serve Jesus Christ. Mary is an example of the heart of all who love the Lord with a sincere love and faith. So keep that in mind this morning as we consider what, she's, what she does. And what does she do? She gives a gift to Jesus. She gives him a gift. Now, it was, it was customary to anoint the heads of guests, right? especially honored guests. But even by the great standards of hospitality in that culture, which were way higher than ours, What Mary did was extreme, even by their standards. Mark says that she brought an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Now, some of you are saying, what's alabaster? It's a soft rock that was often used for carving, uh, to make decorative pieces, uh, and especially to, to make perfume jars, right? It resembles marble. It can be very pretty. And considering what was in the flask, I imagine that this was a rather beautiful piece. Um, and inside this alabaster flask, there was ointment of pure nard. That's perfume oil, perfume oil. Very costly uh, at that time in that region. It had to be imported from India. It was very expensive. Perfume in general did not come cheap back then. Uh, kind of doesn't come cheap now if you buy good stuff, but especially back then, perfume did not come cheap, especially pure, undiluted perfume. And that's what Mark says that she bought. Later in the account, we read that the perfume was worth more than 300 denarii. That's roughly a year's worth of wages for the average person in that day. Uh, To put it in context for us today, in our day, in our region, right, in Scioto County, this would be as if someone got you a present that was worth between $25,000 and $30,000. That's enough to make you stop. Someone got you a present that was worth $25,000 to $30,000. This was an extravagant gift that Mary gave. And considering that women were not really allowed to work, it's very unlikely that Mary worked and saved to purchase this gift. That means that this, there's a good chance that this was a family heirloom of sorts, right? Probably passed down. Um, uh, so, so, So there's sentimental value as well as high monetary value to this gift. It was very precious and it was very costly. And what does she do with it? She broke the flask and poured it over his head. She broke the neck of the flask and proceeded to pour it out on Jesus. What does it mean if she broke it? You can't reseal it. She broke it and it had to all be used right then. There is no reserve. She intends to give the whole thing to Jesus. She pours it all on him. Mark tells us that she poured it on his head. And John chapter 12, verse 3 tells us that she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. She doesn't keep anything back. Nothing. And by the way, this is a Roman pound. This is 11 and a half ounces of perfume. 
She pours out on him. She has brought a gift to him. She wants him to have all of it. She gives the most costly and best thing that she owns to Jesus. The most costly and best. And she did it, she did it gladly. Please see that here. She was not coerced. This was her idea. She wasn't forced. She wanted to give this to Jesus. And see this. She anointed his head and his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. This gift is extravagant in its cost. And this act is the act of a servant, is it not? She's effectively washing his feet with perfume and her hair. This is a picture of total self-abasement before the Savior. It is humility before the Savior. This is devotion to Jesus, if we have ever seen it in Mark's gospel at this point. Mary is declaring with her actions, He is greater than I am. Jesus is worth more than I am. Jesus is supreme over all. He is worth all that I can give Him. Mary thinks more highly of Christ than she thinks of anyone or anything in her life. And so she gives him the best thing that she has, and she does it gladly. Now, now, now why? Why does she do this? Like, why does she esteem him thus? I, I think there's only one reasonable answer. She recognized who he is. At, at, at least more than pretty much anyone else has at this point in Mark's gospel, she recognizes who he is. She knows that he's more than a mere teacher. She knows that there's more to him than meets the eye. He's more than a rabbi. I would say Mary knows something of the worth of Christ. And I say something of the worth of Christ because no one knows the fullness of the worth of Christ. She knows something of his worth. She is, after all, a disciple. But I think that she understands this even more than some or maybe all of the 12 at this point. Mary understands that she should be washing the feet of Christ. She understands that nothing is too great to give to him. And based on Jesus' words in verse 8, he says, She has anointed me beforehand for burial. We might conclude, and maybe not, but we might conclude that she understood something of his soon coming death and its significance. That she believed that he would die. She did, after all, I don't believe I'm stretching this. She did, after all, sit at his feet and listen to him teach. She believed his words. She understood, John 11, that all who believe in him, though they die, yet shall they live. Uh, Maybe she understood something of the truth, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that he is the Lamb of God that John proclaimed would be given as a sacrifice for sinners. Maybe she understood something of the truth, that he is the Passover Lamb, and that she needs him as her substitute before God, so that the wrath of God for her sins might pass over her. But again, see this. Regardless of how much she understood, she knows something of the worth of Christ. She knows something of his person. She loves him. And so she gives him the best thing. She esteems him rightly. And because she esteems him rightly, she recognizes And again, I know I'm beating this drum. I just want to get this into your head. She recognizes that no gift is too costly to give to Jesus. She knows he is worthy of her all, and so she gives all. Brothers and sisters, do we not view him the same? God help us. I mean that. Do we we not view him the same? He died for us. 
We confess this. He died for us. He has saved us. He has forgiven us for our sins. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. In him we are justified. He is merciful to us. He is patient with us. He is kind to us. He cares for us. He loves us. Do we not view him just as highly and as just as lovely as Mary did? Surely we do. Hear me. Surely we do. For we understand more and better now in light of his death and resurrection than Mary ever could have on that day. Mary understood things in shadow. Right? She, she loved him in light of what he would do and how her understanding of what he would do was shadowy. But we love him in the full light and full revelation of what he has accomplished for us. Surely, brothers and sisters, our love for him and our esteem of him is not less than Mary's. Perish the thought. And catch this as well. This, this, this struck me as I was meditating on the text this week. Mary's devotion was to Jesus Christ himself. I'll flesh that out. Her devotion was to Jesus himself. Her devotion and her love was for a person. She did this to and for Jesus. Please hear me and, and listen closely. Her devotion and love were not for a concept, doctrine, knowledge, institution, or tradition. It was for a person. Now hear me. Of all the people that you know, I am not saying that biblical concepts, theological traditions, knowledge of the word, doctrine, or the institution of the church is unimportant. That is not what I'm saying. But I am saying that we are to love those things because they are related to the person whom we adore, Jesus Christ. That, that's why. That's why we are to care about those things. Sometimes, and maybe I'm just preaching to myself, but I doubt it because I'm not the only sinner in the room. Sometimes I think that we might get lost in other things and forget that our devotion is to Christ and that it is only because we love him that we care about the other things. Let me explain what I mean. My dedication to the Reformed Baptist tradition should be because I believe it is the clearest expression of what Jesus wants from me and what he said in his word. Anything less than that is idolatry. My love for the church is to be because Jesus loves and died for and has established his church. My love for sound doctrine and theology is to be because I want to see, know, and savor Jesus Christ and better understand his works and his ways. My love for the Bible is to be because I love the words of Jesus and the Bible is his word. We don't love these things in a vacuum. It's because our devotion is for a person that we care about these other things. And if you love him, you will care about those other things. But let this be burned into our minds. We love Jesus. He is our all. He is our desire. Our love is for a person. Mary's love was for Jesus, and ours is to be the same. But Mary's gift was great, and it is a great example to us, is it not? But not everyone was pleased. Let's read verses 4 and 5 again. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? 
For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. The disciples rebuked Mary because they didn't get it. Like they, they didn't get it. They were, they were upset because they thought the gift could have been used in a better or more appropriate way. They believed that selling the ointment and giving the money to the poor was a much better idea than pouring it on Jesus. And John chapter 12 tells us that Judas the thief led the charge on this objection. Not because he cared about the poor, but because he wanted to pilfer more of the money from the purse of the apostles. And Matthew 26 tells us that though Judas led it, at least some of the twelve agreed with him. Right, So we have the disciples are upset with her. They thought the perfume could have been put to a better use than pouring it out on Christ. And so the text says they scolded her. They rebuked her. The Greek here is they were furious. If I'm remembering rightly, it's a, it's a word that you would use for like horses flaring their nostrils when they're mad. Right, that's what they were. They were angry. And they begin to speak very harshly with her. Right, and we, we can imagine, why, why would you do that? Well, you can imagine what they're saying to her. That was stupid. You're overzealous. Don't you realize what we could have done with that? How much we could have helped the poor? You are a fool. They scolded Mary because out of her love for Christ, she gave an extravagant gift to him. But the sentence that stuck out to me was in verse 4. Why was the ointment wasted? Why was the ointment wasted like that? Are you kidding me? Wasted? Can a gift be wasted on Christ? Is that even a possibility? Perish the thought. To say that a gift is wasted is to say one or more of the following. The receiver wasn't worthy of the gift. The gift was too precious to give. Or the gift could have been put to better use. And in this instance, all of those things are false. Now, maybe they're true in other instances, but not this one. Jesus is worth more than a year's worth of wages. The preciousness of the perfume doesn't even begin to match the preciousness of the Lord. And worshiping Christ is the best use of anything that you can have. Hear me. There was no better use for that perfume than what Mary used it for that day. Spending it on Christ is the best thing she could have done. And she knew it. And that's what motivated her to act. The disciples didn't get it, but Mary did. The disciples actually undervalued Jesus. Did they not? Why was this ointment wasted? What a blasphemy. They undervalued the Lord, but Mary did not. Take note of here the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. He is worthy of our most extravagant love and devotion. There is no gift that we could give to him that is too great. There is nothing too big to give to Christ. Nothing is too costly. Nothing is too much for us to do for him. He is worthy. Think of the most extravagant thing that you could give to him that would cost you the most. You don't, you're not even close to what he's worth. Not even, not remotely close. Everything pales in comparison to the reality of the majesty of his person. And please hear me. The sooner that we recognize this, the sooner we will be willing to lay down our whole lives in his service regardless of the cost. We need to see the worth of Christ. But in this passage, the disciples seem to think that Mary was being too extreme, right? That she's being a zealot. 
right? or a fanatic. That term doesn't get used much anymore, but I think it did once uh, back in the day. She's being a fanatic. She's too extreme in her devotion of Christ. She gave a $30,000 gift to him. They believe that was wasteful and foolish. But brothers and sisters, please hear me. There is no such thing as extreme when it comes to our dedication and love for Jesus. The world may think so, but we know better, don't we? And ironically, I was thinking about this. The world will chase money, fame, power, status, pleasure, whatever it will be, or whatever it may be. They will chase it with all that they have at all costs, and no one calls that extreme, do they? That's devotion. right? The drummer Travis Barker tattooed, I believe he started tattooing his his hands and his arms, and someone asked him, why did you do that? He said, because now I can't get a job and I have to make it in the music industry. And then what do you read? People say, that's dedication to what he wanted. I'm not telling you you get tattoos on your knuckles. That's between you and the Lord. Um, But people call that dedication. They don't call that extreme. But when it comes to religion, to paraphrase J.C. Ryle, the world demands that religion remain tame and moderate. The world will will let you be extreme in everything except religion. Brothers and sisters, that is nonsense. That is nonsense. Much of what we do does not make sense to the world. I'm going to put some things before you. Our constant fellowship with God's people does not make sense to the world. Our consistent attendance at church services does not make sense. Regular sacrifices of time to serve within the church and its ministries, giving 10% or more of our income to the Lord, dedication to read and study a book that is thousands of years old, regular times of prayer, dedication to biblical ethics, refusal to participate in sinful but culturally acceptable entertainments and activities, refusal to compromise when the Lord has spoken, sanctification of the Lord's day and many other such things we do do not make sense to the world, but they are instead viewed as extreme. And we are, if you've not heard this yet, get used to it. It's a new uh, label for us. We are viewed as religious extremists because we take the Lord seriously and devote ourselves to him and his will. But there is no such thing as too extreme. Why is that? Please hear me. Extreme does not exist because there is no devotion so intense that Jesus is not worthy of it. He's worthy of all we can give him and much more. As George Whitfield said in the 1700s, oh, for a thousand lives to spend in the service of Christ. He says, I only have one. I wish I had a thousand. Just as Jesus was worthy of Mary's extreme devotion with the perfume, he is worthy of all that we can give. The world won't get it, but that's okay because we don't care. We don't believe in moderation in religion because we know that Jesus is worthy of it all. And to be called a religious extremist is a compliment. It's a compliment. And truth be told, to be called an extremist in the 21st century means that we're half the men that the Puritans were. Just putting that out there to you. Uh, Another thing, while I'm still on the subject of the disciples rebuking Mary, let me say one more thing to encourage you, because I found this encouraging. It is almost inevitable that when you do something for Jesus, someone is going to criticize you for it. Sadly, even those who also profess to love Jesus. When you do something for Christ, someone's going to criticize you. There will often be naysayers who say that you could have done something better or that you could have done what you did in a better way. 
well, yes, he spoke the truth, but it was too harsh. But or, or, or yes, they, they did that, but I think that they could have maybe organized it a little bit better this way. Or yes, he preached the gospel, but I, but I think that maybe he could have uh, went, went at this angle a little bit better. Someone is always going to criticize it in some way, but don't worry about that. Do something. Do it anyway. Let them criticize. Do it anyway. And I'm not saying that all criticisms are invalid. But people are going to criticize you no matter what you do for Christ. If the Lord has stirred you up to do something, do it. Please hear me. Those who constantly criticize the actions of their fellow servants usually aren't doing anything themselves for the glory of Christ. Usually that's how it goes. But Mary did her act of act out of love for Jesus, and Jesus approved of it. And the same will be true for us. Hear me. So long as it is not sin, and it is done out of sincere love for him, Jesus will be pleased. And that brings us to a related point in this text. The disciples disapproved, but Jesus approved. Verses 6 and 7, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Jesus says that what Mary did was beautiful. And why? Why was it beautiful in the eyes of Christ? Because she loves him. Because she loved him. Because it was a sincere act of love for the Savior. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows the intentions of our hearts. And what is done out of love for the Savior is beautiful in his eyes. Please don't be so reformed that you think, oh, that's a hallmark thought. Listen to the text. Listen to the text. Whatever you do, I just want you, I just want you, to, I want you to hear this. Whatever you do, so long as it is not sin, for sin can never be committed out of love for Christ. It cannot. It's not that it may not be committed out of love for Christ. Sin cannot be committed out of love for Christ. So long as it is not sin, if what you do is born out of love for Jesus Christ, he finds it beautiful. The world may think that it is foolish. The world may think that it is worthless. Even some of your fellow Christians may think the same. But if it is done with a desire to glorify the Savior, he loves it. Just like a father loves the drawings of his child that may be worthless to the world, so Jesus Christ loves the works of his children that are done out of love for him. To paraphrase R. Kent Hughes, there are a lot of things that Jesus finds beautiful that maybe we wouldn't. Two widow's mites, cups of water given to his disciples, broken alabaster boxes, and anything else that is done out of love for him. Jesus accepted Mary's act of love. He embraced both it and her. He'll do the same for us. And know this, that's all that matters. Brothers and sisters, stop caring what people think and start caring only what the Lord thinks. If his smile is upon you, let the whole world frown. If he says good, then let the whole world say bad and it doesn't matter because they're wrong. If he is pleased, then you are safe and you are blessed. But I want you to catch something else about the worth of Christ here. Notice in verse 7 that Jesus implicitly tells us something about himself. 
I didn't catch this. I had, to, I had to catch this from a commentary. Jesus implicitly tells us something about himself in verse 7. Notice that he doesn't disagree that the perfume could have been sold and used for the poor. He doesn't disagree with that point. In verse 7, he actually, I think he's paraphrasing Deuteronomy 15, he actually commends helping the poor. And he does not say that his disciples shouldn't do that, right? He's, that you should help the poor. And he doesn't dispute that the money could have been used that way. But he does say, nevertheless, that what Mary did was beautiful. It was good. It was right. It was proper. Now, a question for you. How can Jesus say that even though the money could have been used for the poor, it was still right to give the gift to him? Put it in another way. Who among us could say that it is good or even better to give us a $30,000 gift than to help the poor with the money? Who among us could say that? None of us could say that. That would be the height of arrogance for you to say, yeah, you could have used the poor, but like, eh, it was better that you gave me the money, right? Like that, that would be nearly blasphemous considering that God commands us to help the poor. But Jesus says it here. What does that tell us about Jesus? He is God. He is God. The only thing higher on the list than loving your neighbor is to love God. Is to love God and worship him. And here Jesus says, it was good that Mary did this for him instead of giving the money to the poor. Only God can say such a thing about himself. Only God is worthy of that kind of devotion and sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, it is a simple thing, but I want you to see in this text that Jesus Christ is God, and God is worthy of our full devotion. The poor are not to be ignored, but giving to Christ as he stood on earth was more important and better than helping the poor. He is God. And I know that that's simple, but it has enormous implications on how we live and devote ourselves to Jesus. I mean, if the more that we sit and meditate on the fact that the Jesus we encounter in the scriptures is the sovereign creator of the universe who sustains us with every breath, who's providentially guiding our lives, who, who has brought us to himself by his spirit for salvation, the more that we understand that he is the one in whom we live and move and have our being, that he holds the world together by the power of his will, the more we will revere him the more that we'll see he's not just a guy who gives good advice, but he is God. As we confess in the Nicene Creed, true God of true God. He really is God. The more we see this, the more we will be willing to give ourselves wholly unto him in all things whatsoever he is pleased to command of us. Because we'll see him as, as he is. When we see him, we'll see the majesty of God. And we'll give ourselves over to him in praise and thanksgiving and allegiance. But as Jesus is, is praising Mary for her gift, he says another thing that's worthy of our meditation. In verse 8, Jesus says, She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. By anointing Jesus with this perfume, Mary had done something incredibly significant. She anointed him beforehand for burial. Now, Let's be honest. Maybe Mary didn't realize the full significance of what she had just done. And maybe she did. I don't know. But either way, Jesus says that she anointed him for burial. Once again, Jesus affirms he's going to die. He's going to die. As at many times before in Mark's gospel, the clock chimes, marking the approaching death of Christ on a cross. See this here and marvel. 
this Jesus, who is worthy of all love and devotion and extravagant praise like Mary has shown, is going to die. He's going to die. This Jesus, to whom all men everywhere owe their love and praise, for he is God Almighty, is going to die. And he is going to die because, as he said earlier in Mark's gospel, he is going to give himself as a ransom for many. He is going to lay down his own life for his sheep. He is going to die, as Paul teaches us in Romans 3, as a substitutionary, atoning, wrath-satisfying, sin-cleansing death for all who would trust in him. He is going to die as the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, for all who will believe in him. And by his death, he will save the people of God from their sins. This, brothers and sisters, is one of the greatest reasons why he is so worthy of our love and devotion. Go with me for a second. Show me another supposed God in all the religions of the world who took on flesh in order to die for those who had sinned against him. Show me another supposed God who would become a man in order to suffer for sins he did not commit. Show me another supposed God who would lower himself to the grave in order to give life to the very ones who deserve to die. Show me another. I dare you. I challenge you. Find another one. You won't. Look at all the false religions of the world and you will not find anyone like this. You will not find any God like this. You will not find any good news like this. And you will not find another like Jesus because there are none like him. Try. You won't find him or you won't find another like him. You won't find one who's worthy like him because none are worthy like him. You will not find another one who is worthy of your devotion, love, and a whole life. For none are worthy but him. Bow down before this Jesus. This one. Give him your all. He is worthy of it. He is worthy of it. And Mary's precious gift that Christ was worthy of that was this anointing of Christ for his burial, reminds us of how precious the death of Christ is, doesn't it? The value of the perfume is symbolic of the value of Christ crucified for sinners. And this value, the value of his death, is inestimable. His death is our life, is it not? His blood is our salvation. By his wounds, we are healed of our sin sickness. There is nothing so valuable as the Savior dead for us. And yes, it is our glory, is it not? We glory in one who died. We glory in one who died. Because the death of the one has brought life to all who believe. He is worthy. And there's something else glorious for us to see here. Mary anointed Jesus beforehand for burial. And that's a good thing too. That she did it beforehand. Because she wasn't going to have another opportunity, was she? Mark chapter 16, verse 6. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. They went to his tomb to anoint him, and he was not there. He is alive. He died for sinners, yes, and we glory in his death, but he is alive forevermore. He is risen. 
risen victorious as our Savior and as our surety before the throne of God. Tell me he's not worthy. Tell me he's not. You can't. He is worthy of our worship. He is the dead and risen Savior. But a final point now that I want to make from this text is in our final verse. Verse 9. Jesus says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus says that what Mary did on that day would be remembered forever. Her devotion for Christ, her love for Christ, her worship of Christ will forever be remembered. And just real quick, you want to, this is the fulfillment of that, by the way. That's prophecy of Jesus. We're, it's being fulfilled right now. 2,000 years later, we're still talking about Mary. And we will forever. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed. You think the gospel is not going to be proclaimed for all eternity as we worship the Lamb of God? Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, whenever it is proclaimed, this will be proclaimed forever. We will be talking about how Mary loved Christ and how Christ was worthy of all of her devotion and all of her love. And there's a principle, I think, contained in all this. Jesus took note of what Mary did, and it pleased him. It mattered to him, and he said it would be remembered forever. Brothers and sisters, see the principle here. What is done for Christ matters, and it matters not just in your life, not just into the end of history, but it matters forever. What is done for Christ will one day be told and retold for all eternity. What is done for Christ is all that matters in the end, and it matters because he remembers it. Brothers and sisters, I tell you this from time to time, but hear it again today. Live in light of the next 10,000 years. In millennia to come, nobody's going to be talking about you. Hate to burst your bubble. Honestly, in, in less than 100 years after you're dead, there may be five people that remember who you are. If you do something great, you might last 500 years. Ask your average person on the street who Martin Luther is, and they'll say he was a great civil rights leader in the 1960s. Some of you are giggling, right? It's true. It's true. We love Martin Luther, uh, the German monk from the 1500s. Um, but no, no one hardly knows who he is unless you're in the church and you know something of church history. No one's going to remember what you've done a thousand years from now. No one's going to remember you. No one's going to be talking about the money you made, the success you had, the stuff you owned, the sights you saw, or anything about you. But what is done for Christ is remembered by Christ and therefore will be remembered by his people forever. Please know that. Live like that's true. What a glorious thing. This is glorious. The king who is owed everything by all takes note of what is done for him by those who love him. Have you considered that's gracious? Like that is kind? That is, that's actually humble? He's the humble God? After all, Luke 17.10 says that we are unworthy servants who have only done what was our duty. That's all you can say after you, you die for Christ, an awful martyr's death. All you can say at the end of that is I did what I was supposed to do and nothing more. You give all your money to Christ and become poor. All you can say is, I just did what I was supposed to do. Though we are unworthy servants, he still takes note. And he remembers forever. Brothers and sisters, live in such a way that the king will one day speak of you doing a beautiful thing to him. Even the smallest thing done for Christ matters forever. 
As one Christian poet said very famously, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's true. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is telling us here, I will remember. As I near the close of this sermon, brothers and sisters, hear me. Jesus is worth more. More than what? More than whatever you think he's worth. He's worth more. He's worth more. So give him everything. Nothing is too much. No gift you give, please hear me, no gift you give, no obedience you render, no sacrifice you make is too much. He is worthy. And what you do will be remembered by him forever. It'll be remembered by his people as we praise him for eternity, but more importantly, it will be remembered by the king himself. So think on these things and live for him, for he is worthy. May God grant each of us to see a glimpse of the worth of Christ today. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word that is so rich, so full of, of truth and beauty and the glory and majesty of our Lord Jesus. We ask, God, that you would seal these things to our hearts and teach us to live more for Christ. Teach us to live for what matters. Help us, help us to see him. Though you are the incomprehensible God and we will never get to the bottom of it, God, help us to see something true. Help us to see a glimpse of him that we might be changed. Have mercy and change us. Give us eyes to see, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.